Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Lior Sapir. Lior Sapir is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a prolific writer for MI's in-house journal, City Journal, on all things gender ideology, LGBT, transgender specifically related. He has become one of the foremost, most indispensable sources of reading when it comes to the transgender phenomenon, the social craze that we have seen over the past few years when it comes especially to kind of the harms of many of these surgeries, gender-affirming care, as it is too often touted as the desecration of the Hippocratic Oath and all of that. Lior is a PhD. He's coming at this problem, this social, cultural, and civilizational problem from a fundamentally scholarly perspective. And I cannot wait to bring him on here. And I want to just briefly set the table for you. So I wrote my column this past week about the trials and tribulations of Tucker Carlson at Fox News. So we talked about this a little bit last week with our guest, Arthur Millick. Tucker was recently fired by Fox News. And the reasoning for that is... Not entirely clear, but as the case may be, as I discussed with Arthur, I actually saw Tucker give his last big public talk, his last big public presentation before he got the axe from Fox News. He was the keynote speaker of the Heritage Foundation's 50th anniversary gala two Fridays ago now, and in his speech, it was, you know, it was classic Tucker, it was slapstick funny, it was self-deprecating, it was this and it's that, but when he got to this substantive takeaway, that he really wished his audience to impart at the Heritage Foundation's swanky 50th anniversary gala two Fridays ago in National Harbor, Maryland. When he got to the really kind of meet, when he hit his stride in his keynote speech, Tucker Carlson was fundamentally getting at a point that we have tried to impart on this podcast since we launched almost a year and a half ago now, which is we are fundamentally living in a different era. The era of two amicable sides who all have ultimately their same end goal, the end goal of kind of prosperity and mutual flourishing and growth and justice, yada, yada, yada. The idea that we have two sides who basically want that and we just respectfully disagree on the way to get there and as Tucker said, may the best white paper win, that is no longer descriptive of what is going on now. Rather, rather, as Tucker said, we are engaged in a much broader civilizational struggle where we actually don't necessarily want the same outcome. We don't actually necessarily want the same end because we are starting from what increasingly appears to be either irreconcilable or deeply, deeply, deeply at loggerheads, starting points, precepts, and substantive underpinnings. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that the left, large swaths of the cultural left, of the social justice warrior left, of the woke left, of wokeism, and multiculturalism in general, are fundamentally operating from a different theological and anthropological conception of mankind and man's relation to his fellow man, to the state, and ultimately to God himself. Really, that is what is going on here. And the transgender issue, 
gender-affirming care, so to speak, for minors in particular, there is no issue that more highlights and underscores that great civilizational divide. You know, on the one hand, are these surgeries and this kind of broader notion that anyone can just choose his or her own gender and that you are a reprehensible bigot if you don't recognize it on the one hand or on the other hand, whether this entire paradigm is itself a desecration of the medical profession, desecration of the human body, and ultimately desecration of God Almighty himself. On the, I mean, how do you reconcile that? How do you square that circle? I mean, what are the actual empirical harms of these surgeries or these so-called surgeries? And how ultimately, for those of us who hope that this horrific experiment in chemical castration, genital mutilation, mastectomies on healthy teenage girls, for those of us who hope and pray that this horrific experiment comes to an end, how do we ultimately expedite, if anything, that long overdue already end to this horrific cycle? Well, we're going to talk about a lot of that and more with the guests that we will bring on right after a short commercial break. So please do stay with us. We'll be joined momentarily by Lior Sapir of City Journal and the Manhattan Institute. We're going to have a great conversation. Please stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. So as previously mentioned, we are just delighted to be joined this week by Lior Sapir. Lior is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He is really, just over the past couple of years from what I've gathered, has become one of the leading voices in the fight, as I would phrase it, for civilizational sanity against the forces of civilizational arson when it comes to gender ideology, transgenderism, and all that that entails. So Lior, you really do tremendous work, and it's a thrill to have you on this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for that, Josh, and it's nice to be with you. So I wanted to start on a brief biographical note. So you're a PhD, which kind of immediately sets you apart. And I'm not kind of the kind of person who will typically just, you know, fluff someone's academic credentials and this makes you more qualified or that. But it is interesting and you do come from an academic background. So I guess the question I want to have for you is what made you decide, given that particular kind of vocational educational background to dedicate your career, at least at this current time, to this particular fight? What kind of got you in there in kind of the think tank world and uh, brought you out of academia, I guess? Sure. So I was doing my PhD in American government. um, And um, around 2016 uh, is when I finished my comprehensive exams. And I was looking for a topic to write my dissertation about. Um, And the same week that I completed my, my comprehensive exams, the Obama administration handed down this obscure uh, Dear Colleague letter um, in which it basically instructed uh, all schools that receive federal funding, which is pretty much all schools, that as a condition of receiving federal funding, they have to treat their students according to their declared gender as opposed to their actual sex. Um, And this was done through bureaucratic fiat. Um, There were very few antecedents to it. Um, it did not follow a rigorous process of rule of uh, rulemaking, um, and it was not really a big political issue at the time. And I wanted to understand how 
you know, what this tells us about American government and um, in particular what, what I and uh, <clears throat> my dissertation advisor uh, were calling the civil rights state. Um, and so I spent the next few years writing a dissertation on um, the regulation of gender and gender identity in education under Title IX and the, uh, uh, the 14th Amendment. And, you know, once you get into those issues, you very quickly see that uh, the Office for Civil Rights and various civil rights advocacy organizations, and especially federal courts, were using medical rationales and medical justifications to change uh, federal law and um, public policy on the issue of how schools are supposed to accommodate kids who, uh, uh, who reject their sex. So, you know, once you start looking into these medical issues and you start looking at the research and what American medical organizations have said um, and how we depart from our, uh, you know, medical authorities in other countries, it's one of these things where once you see it, you cannot look away um, because it really is, I think, one of the, the greatest medical scandals in American history, certainly in the 21st century. Um, and so I decided as I was grappling with whether to leave the academy, and somebody uh, writing on the issue of transgenderism, if you don't take the approved position, there is no future for you in the academy. I was kind of, uh, you know, looking over at the think tank world and, um, and the Manhattan Institute generously agreed to publish uh, an essay of mine that summarizes some of the insights for my dissertation on how the kind of a bad interpretation of already flawed science made its way into federal litigation. And um, they ended up offering me a job. And, um, you know, I've been work focusing um, a lot more on the medical side, medical issues, and how that interacts with public policy, and a little bit less on um, litigation and bureaucratic regulation, although that that as well. Well, just to clarify one thing you said, I mean, you basically said, and I, I wanted to make sure I heard this correctly, that it is your stance that if you're in academia today and you subscribe to the millennia old belief that sexual dimorphism is is real, that we are man or woman and that you don't get to basically choose your gender. I mean, it, that belief makes you completely verboten in the academy today. I mean, just completely verboten. I mean, outside of like a Hillsdale or a Grove City or kind of a, a more dissident university like that. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think you'd, you'd find it extremely difficult to find. I'm not even talking about a tenure track job, um, even adjunct positions, um, any kind of uh, academic positions, fellowships um, outside of the very, very narrow world of uh, kind of conservative um, or maybe we should probably call them um, classical liberal institutions and programs. Um, it's it's virtually impossible to make a career for yourself if you take uh, you know disapproved um, position uh, on this issue. That really just happens so quickly. I mean, that is what that's why I wanted to clarify what I heard from you because these trends just happen so shockingly quickly. I mean, just to kind of refresh the the listeners' memories here, you know, it was in 2012 was the first year. You know, not to politicize it so immediately, but that was the first year that the Democratic Party's official platform espoused a same-sex marriage. Of course, in 2008, Barack Obama did not run on that by 2012. He had, and even back in 2012, the whole transgender debate was, you know, barely kind of a twinkle in the eye. And, you know, I guess that kind of leads me to my next question for you, Lior. So we recently published in Newsweek 
a nice op-ed from actually a former uh, MI scholar currently at AEI, my friend Max Eden. And Max briefly kind of described the history of the infamous Dr. John Money, who I think a lot of kind of the gender theorists kind of cite uh, as one of the um, original leading luminaries or, or something along those lines. I mean, to me, his, his life story looks quite a bit more horrific. But can you just kind of briefly walk us through uh, just the history? I mean, it's maybe starting with John Money, but just how it's accelerated so much in recent years as to how we got to the current playing field where this social contagion has reached the point where I think you were accurately describing as one of the greatest medical scandals and just civilizational maladies afflicting these United States. Sure. So that, uh, there's a lot there, Josh. Um, and I think if we if we go down the rabbit hole of John Money, we may not come out of it. Um, <laughs> So, so maybe I'll just say very, very briefly and very vaguely um, that money's, uh, you know, experiment um, uh, ended in failure. Um, and that experiment was to basically say, you know, if a, if a child um, with a botched circumcision, a male child with a botched circumcision, um, if he's raised as a girl, um, you know, then uh, gender identity is is malleable in that way that he can be uh, be properly socialized as a girl and be content to be um, a woman in life. And that turned out not to be not to be true um, with very tragic results. But of course, later on, the failure of the experiment was uh, interpreted as evidence um, that gender identity is not, in fact, as fluid as John Money had, had originally thought, that it cannot just be acquired socially in that way. Um, and this belief actually underwrites uh, I would say the you know the bulk of the um, gender affirming medical establishment, um, in as much as you know they believe in an innate, immutable, fixed at a very young age gender identity um, that once it's felt and expressed um, can never really be changed, and therefore any form of um, intervention in the form of, for example, psychotherapy um, designed to uh, help kids feel comfortable in their actual sex. Um, or even psychotherapy designed to help kids um, uh, deal with feelings of dysphoria, which are quite natural during adolescence and puberty, um, and for a small number of people can last a lot longer than that, um, that these psychotherapeutic approaches are, are unethical and harmful because you can never change gender identity. And um, of course, you know, if you add a few additional ideological assumptions that uh, gender identity um, is something that's known experientially and instinctively um, through a kind of a, uh, an intuition um, that kids can have infallible knowledge of their gender identity. I mean, you, you're here, you're already veering into um, mystical assumptions. I mean, these are not scientific assumptions. They're it's a it's a faith. Right. Um, it's, it's a quasi-religious faith. But but um, you know, if you accept these uh, axioms, these these assumptions, um, then it's easy to see why you can very easily be led to believe that uh, drugs and surgeries are appropriate for for young for young kids. I totally agree with that. And I guess, you know, to me, I mean, I think that's my first year of law school. And, you know, they teach you in kind of formal logic that the so-called slippery slope is a quote unquote logical fallacy. But, you know, as my friend Gladden Pappen of the University of Dallas likes to point out on Twitter, it's really better understood as the iron law of the slippery slope. And to me, that's kind of one paradigm through which to kind of better try to understand the transgender phenomenon, like I said, I mean, the same-sex marriage debate was effectively foreclosed by the Supreme Court in the unfortunate Obergefell case of 2015. And now this is kind of the, the next frontier 
in in LGBT and the sexual revolution, you might say. But, you know, let's focus then on just on the past five to 10 years. I, I mean, what kind of events can you pinpoint or what kind of thinkers? I mean, this thing just happens so quickly. And, and that's really what I have a hard time trying to figure out. Yeah. So I mean, a, a great deal of my doctoral work was devoted to understanding, you know, how this happened so quickly and so seemingly out of the blue for the average citizen. So let, maybe a, a good place to start would be 2014, where Time magazine declared a transgender tipping point, if you recall, um, a picture of Laverne Cox on the um, on the uh, uh, on the cover. Um now, of course, tipping point, I think, is a misleading term because tipping points usually imply kind of a long history of agitation that and, and then there's some kind of event that tips the scales. And I think that was a, um, a misleading metaphor. Um, if you look at, you know, race and slavery and Jim Crow, you're talking about hundreds of years. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, 400 years, let's say. Um, if you're talking about women's rights, women's equality, um, you're talking about, you know, 200, 250 years, depending on on where you start the um, the, the journey. Um, gay rights, uh, let's say since the 1950s, uh, with the other uh, bookend being the Obergefell decision in 2015. So you're talking there about, you know, what, 65 years around that. With transgender issues, it seems like nobody was talking about these issues prior to, you know, this uh, Obama administration's second term in office. Um, and then all of a sudden it became, as Joe Biden said in 2012, and he repeated this claim in 2020, the civil rights issue of our time. You know, how does this obscure issue that nobody is talking about or paying attention to all of a sudden become the civil rights issue of our time? Um, the answer to that is very complicated. I mean, part of it has to do with um, profound changes in our political system that have been going on uh, really throughout the 20th century, but were supercharged after the 1960s. Um, in particular, the rise of an administrative state, um, of a judicial process, an administrative process that is um, highly insulated from political and popular oversight, the ability of uh, nonprofits and public, what are known as public interest groups to uh, understand and manipulate, and I don't use that word in a negative sense, um, just uh, manipulate either for, for good or for bad, but to manipulate the administrative process to achieve certain policy goals. All of these things are happening in the background over the last 50, 60 years. Um, and without them, the transgender revolution in the United States, at least, would not have been possible. Um, because so much of it happened, and I can get into that in a minute, but so much of it happened through um, the uh, the obscure judicial and bureaucratic process so that by the time it was presented to the public during the Obama administration's um, really second term in office, although it started during the first term, a lot of these policies and new cultural understandings and new bureaucratic and institutional realities were already a done deal. So let's actually take it to a quick commercial break just for time purposes, but I want to pick it right up there. Let's kind of talk about the Obama administration and let's really kind of get into that. I think that it's actually a fascinating place to take this conversation. So once again, we have Lior Sapir. He's a fellow with the Manhattan Institute. We're going to take it to a quick break. We'll be right back on the other side. Stay with us. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
So, Lior, let's just hop right in right where we left off there. So we were about to talk about kind of the bureaucratic legwork, I think is kind of the way that you were phrasing it, that was kind of already planted before the substantive gender ideologues could then carry the torch forward. And, you know, as, as a lawyer by background, someone who thinks about the administrative state a lot, this interests me profoundly. So can you just continue to unpack that a little bit, especially during the Obama administration years? Sure. So I think w- one misimpression that I like to correct um, is the the idea that, you know, that there was kind of a, a cabal of ideologues who were secretly scheming to impose a new cultural agenda on the United States. I mean, there's some truth to that, but I, I don't. that's not really how these types of... Um, of revolutions, social revolutions work. In the case of, of the transgender revolution, it was very much, I think, a series of small incremental steps that judges and bureaucrats were taking, not always understanding what it is that they were doing. Um, and so let me kind of flesh that out a little bit. You know, a good place to begin is in 2010, the White House um, held an anti-bullying summit. And this was in response to real realities on the ground. Um, you know, keep in mind over the past, over the uh, um, previous few years, um, young people had, for the first time ever, um, gotten their hands on a, an extremely powerful and dangerous combination of technologies. Um, I, I'm referring to smartphones and social media, and that made that, you know, in addition to other social trends. Um, really exacerbated the problem of bullying and especially cyberbullying or, or online harassment of students um, in schools, making uh, life very difficult, not just for students, but also for teachers and school administrators. And so the Obama administration responded to this um, with new anti-bullying initiatives. Now, in the context of these anti-bullying initiatives, they ran into a certain legal problem, which is that the Supreme Court had long said that there's strong First Amendment protections for kids, and a lot of um, non-physical bullying involves almost by definition uh, speech. Um, so there were really kind of some legal and constitutional constraints on what the Obama administration could do. And so therefore, it, it said, look, but there's certain cases, certain types of harassment and teasing um, that are based on protected characteristics under our civil rights laws, um, and including sex and gender and sexual orientation as they interpret it. So this became the basis for the Office for Civil Rights under the Department of, of, uh, of Education um, to issue a string of dear colleague letters, which are unilateral bureaucratic declarations, um, instructing schools how the Office for Civil Rights is going to interpret Title IX and try to enforce Title IX. And so in this context, OCR in coordination with a variety of public interest advocacy groups um, in the LGBT advocacy world started <clears throat> responding to complaints in schools and investigating those schools. Um, and some of these complaints, if you read through them, you see that there are kind of gay kids, lesbian kids, uh, kids who identify as transgender um, that are just being harassed by their peers. Um, and in some of these cases, the kids were wanted to go into the bathrooms designated for the opposite sex, and they were teased for it, harassed by it, for it, um, or the school administrators made them feel bad for wanting to um, uh, to use these facilities. Um, and so the Obama administration basically said, no, as a condition of fulfilling Title IX, you have to let these kids use these bathrooms because otherwise you're engaging in harassment. So through a series of complicated uh, steps that the federal courts and the Office for Civil Rights took one past the other, uh, by 2015, 2016, 
um, the argument became more therapeutic. It became that, um, you know, these kids as, as a way of, of treating their gender dysphoria, and keep in mind that that term was added to the DSM-5 in 2013, um, as, a, as the only viable treatment for their gender dysphoria is social transition in school, meaning to be recognized as members of the opposite sex. So by this point, the, the Obama administration and the federal courts had already um, approved, uh, you know, a, a, a novel interpretation of federal law and of the terms bullying and harassment that really uh, paved the way to the redefinition of the word sex itself. So again, it's not as if, you know, you had a, a small number of ideologues just kind of imposing a new cultural revolution um, from the center, from, from behind the curtains of a bureaucratic state. I think the story is much more one of uh, muddling through, making um, decisions under conditions of uncertainty where you don't really know what your decision is going to lead to, but the, the accumulation of all these decisions over time de facto produces one of these cultural and social revolutions. And so once that revolution came into being, it became uh, extremely difficult for Democrats to walk it back. Because one of the things we know about uh, the American political system is that once certain policies or rights or programs or interests are granted, it's very, very difficult um, to take them. To take oh, them totally. Back. No, absolutely. Well, you are. I mean, that was just, that was profoundly helpful. I mean, if you are the kind of person who was wondering how this thing happened overnight, I would encourage you to hit the rewind button and just listen to the last few minutes of our conversation over again until you kind of intuit it. Because that is also not just is it profoundly helpful, but to me, that is a shining example of a point that I like to make pretty frequently. So, you know, there's the famous kind of Andrew Breitbartian formulation. It's actually a bit of a misquote, or at least it's lacking context. But he did say, albeit out of context, that politics is downstream of culture. But, you know, what I have said is that it really is a two-way arrow, that politics and law on the one hand, and then culture on the other hand, absolutely positively do influence each other. You know, there are so many examples of that. I mean, after Roe versus Wade, public opinion starts gradually shifting towards a more, more pro-abortion stance. Certainly, same-sex marriage polling kind of starts to really kind of escalate in favor of uh, being in favor of it after the Obergefell decision. And what we just heard from you, I think, is yet another example as to how kind of law or at, least, or at least kind of purported law, because the lawyer me does feel that these dear colleague letters uh, certainly lack the force of law, I think would be an understatement. But anything kind of claiming or purporting to be law or operating under the color of law definitely, definitely can affect culture in this way as well. So that was that was really just quite helpful, I think, kind of laying the foundation for where we are. Leo, I want to get to kind of next steps in policy and what, you know, what what the heck our side should do and all that. But I do want to ask one very kind of straightforward question. Again, you are you, you are an expert in this PhD, um, yada, yada, yada. What is the very straightforward response from people like you and I who are on the side of sanity on this issue to the people on the other side who just tell us that gender identity and biological sex actually are distinct? What, what is the very kind of short, crisp response to that talking point? I'm not sure there is a short, crisp talking point. I think one of the reasons why this issue is so controversial and so difficult is that it genuinely is complex. That doesn't mean that, it's, um, that the answer is, is unclear. Um, but it does mean that it takes a considerable amount of thinking and reasoning to, to arrive at a coherent and, and, and um, convincing answer. But what I would say is, um, you know, gender identity as a concept, I think, is just um, is is doesn't have a good definition. Um, the definitions tend to be either circular 
um, some or, or question begging or rely on stereotypes. Um, so, you know, I, I think part of the problem here is that um, when, you know, kind of mainstream liberals say gender identity or a transgender kid is being authentic or all these kinds of, um, you know, cliches, um, what they really mean is sincere. The person is being sincere. They're not deceiving us. They're not intentionally trying to lead us astray. But of course, that's just begging the question. So what if they're being sincere? There's a lot of things that I believe sincerely that may not end up being true. Um, so you need an argument about the value of sincerity. And, and to some extent, you know, the post-1960s cultural landscape is very much a battle over how, how to what extent people should be allowed to express their sincerely held beliefs and convictions. Uh, um, but, uh, but, but I would say that... Um, Usually when you argue with people who maintain that, you know, that sex and gender identity are distinct, if you press them a little bit, you very quickly find that what they're saying is that some people are sincerely convinced that they're not their actual biological sex. Okay, but so what? You see what I mean? That's right. just the first part of a much, much right, bigger right, right. debate. You know, like you said, I mean, gender dysphoria was an extremely broadly recognized concept in psychiatry, psychology. So it's actually less about, and thank you for the correction, it's less about kind of this stark line or lack thereof between biological sex and gender identity. It's more about how we as a society treat the condition because, you know, again, people have been feeling subjectively all sorts of things vis-a-vis uh, -vis their biological sex for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. So that is absolutely fair. So, all right. So let's move on to what is probably my favorite part of the conversation which is kind of public policy, law, and next steps forward. So, you know, the current trend in, in the states, and, you know, it seems like in the year 2023 that it, it's, it's, it's happening fairly rapidly. I mean, the, you know, the dominoes here are, are falling in fairly quick succession. All these uh, predominantly red-leaning states are, are passing bans on, on, on so-called gender-affirming care for minors. So I presume that you would be supportive of those types of legislation. So why don't you kind of walk us through some of the general kind of public policy guideposts and touchstones that you think should guide legislators and elected officials who are sympathetic to uh, your your worldview and I guess my worldview on this? Sure, sure. So um, <clears throat> and I've, I've testified in two states on behalf of these these bans. I don't support every ban as written. I think some of them go a little too far, but but um, but I do support them in general. Let, let me try to explain why very briefly. I think that the strongest case uh, for government regulation, especially of an area of life as sensitive and as uh, kind of knowledge-driven as medicine, is that the professionals who are entrusted to carry out their responsibilities and um, are not doing so in the interest of, in this case, patient health. So, you know, we saw, for example, in the opioid epidemic, <clears throat> when doctors were running OxyContin pill mills, that was a good occasion, a justified scenario for the state to step in and impose certain restrictions on how and when doctors could practice their trade. Um, so this idea that we often hear from the other side that it's never appropriate for, as, as one Democrat in Utah put it to me, for legislatures to practice medicine, um, is simply is clearly and demonstrably false. Um, of course it is. Legislators can practice any of the trades, so to speak, um, when the, when the occasion arises and, and there's a clear justification. And I should also mention that those who are opposed to legislators intervening in how doctors um, respond to kids who, who reject their sex, Democrats 
themselves want legislators to practice medicine. And we know that because 20 states have uh, banned the use of what they call conversion therapy, which is really just the use of psychotherapy to try to help kids who reject their bodies come to terms with their bodies. And they've done so against all available scientific evidence. And so they are very much in favor of legislators practicing medicine, just a different type of medicine. So everybody is in favor of uh, state regulation of medicine in some cases. It just depends on when and why. So all of that, uh, uh, you know, saying all of that, look, I mean, in the case of, of bans on, on so-called gender-affirming care, I think a lot of it, all of it comes down, in my view, to the lack of evidence for, uh, for necessity and for clinical benefits. Um, you know, I'm not one of these people who make uh, metaphysical claims that no kid is born in the wrong body. I, you know, I, I do think that sex is real and, and unchangeable, but I am willing to allow and, and uh, you know, willing to recognize that in some cases you can have kids who are, um, are destined to have lifelong acute uh, gender dysphoria. It's just that we have no reliable tools to know who they are. Um, and, for, uh, and, and the studies uh, seem to suggest that for every one of these kids nowadays, there's, you know, tens or possibly even hundreds of kids who are experiencing distress about their sex bodies for other reasons. And medicalizing those kids is certainly bad. So I think that the best case for uh, state bans on, the, on that practice right now is that we cannot trust the doctors and the professional medical associations to regulate themselves in the interest of patient health. And there's a huge amount of evidence to support this. I've spent the last few months documenting that evidence, including um, in a, uh, a long article that I just wrote for City Journal on what happened in Texas. So that's, I think, you know, anytime you wanna to try to make the case for, for bans, I think you have to make that type of argument that normally we we rely on professionals to regulate themselves, but there is limited circumstances, extreme cases in which they refuse to to or are or are unable to do so. And in those limited circumstances, the state has a duty to step in and protect, uh, in this case, um, patients, or you could say more broadly, consumers from from harm. Kind of following up on that, I'd be curious for your thoughts on the child-specific framing of some of these debates. So, you know, the way that you hear some of these contests uh, in the political arena debated about being centered around protecting vulnerable minors, you know, it really does kind of fundamentally viewed from that perspective, get down to the idea of consent, that someone who's under 18 or whatever the kind of statutory age is cannot consent. That kind of gets you back to contract law 101 principles. Um, I, I've been somewhat critical of that, actually, because I don't think that this is actually an issue of consent. I think that it is fundamentally an issue of anthropology and the human condition and fundamentally really kind of a violation of the Hippocratic Oath and a desecration of the medical profession. Um, so I, I, I'd be curious if you are sympathetic to that if you view that similarly, because while I recognize prudentially that kind of starting with some of these more prudential bans for children is a good place to start, it's not necessarily theoretically compelling to me to live in a world where even kind of adults can do this as well. Yeah, I, it's a good question. Look, I, I think if the issue is framed as one of consent, I think it's quite obvious to most people that young children are in no position to give consent to lifelong medical treatments for a condition that um, is very likely to be uh, a transient, um, uh, out of which they're very likely to grow. Um, we have good evidence showing that most of these kids, uh, if you just leave them alone, will come out as gay or lesbian, not lifelong transgender. You know, if you look at the justifications for the use of puberty blockers in the original Dutch protocol, the Dutch clinicians saw puberty blockers as part of the diagnostic phase 
Um, because they thought that these interventions were fully reversible, and we now know that they're not, but because they thought they're fully reversible, they said, okay, if a kid has gender dysphoria as a young child, um, and that dysphoria does not evaporate like it does in the vast majority of cases by the time they reach adolescence, that's a good indication that it's going to stick with them for the rest of their lives. So let's then escalate one step further and give them puberty blockers to see if it alleviates their short-term distress. Um, and puberty blockers will give them a time to think about what they want to do next. Um, and be, it's totally reversible. So the moment they want to stop, they can just stop. Um, we know that none of that is true. Um, puberty blo blockers are almost a, 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 a near 100% guarantee that the kid will go on to further medicalization. Um, so that, you know, even if you, so even if you take the kind of informed consent view, if you think that the kid is merely giving informed consent to a, an experiment uh, with puberty blockers that they can reverse in a heartbeat, um, that's just false. They're not. They are consenting um, to uh, you know, much more invasive and potentially lifelong medical uh, interventions that can have serious side effects that they can't even begin to contemplate, like loss of um, uh, a permanent loss of fertility. So, so that's if you if you're thinking about it through the lens of consent, I think the case for allowing kids to consent to these interventions is extremely weak. Um, but there's another way to envision the justification for these interventions, and that has to do with clinical benefits. Um, you know, we don't ask for a child's for a five-year-old's consent for a chemotherapy um, uh, if the child has cancer, right? Um, that's almost nonsensical. But likewise, you can say, you know, with adults you can look at adults and say, okay, um, from one perspective, if the adult gives informed consent, and informed is a crucial caveat here, but if the adult gives informed consent to, an ex to a treatment that's experimental, that has no proven clinical benefits, that may be, even be harmful, okay, fair enough. You know, if you have uh, strong libertarian instincts, um, it's not necessarily more damaging than other types of body modification that, are also, that also entail risks. But, but you can also look at it from a, a clinical benefits perspective and say, all right, well, if there's an objective medical condition that we're trying to treat here, gender dysphoria, then we need to have a proper diagnosis of the condition, both in kids and in adults. Um, and we need to have a, a treatment that's the least invasive and tailored to, uh, to treating this particular condition. And in that case, consent is a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition for treatment. Right. So there really are two different ways to think about um, these treatments for both kids and adults. And I would say that when you're, when you're moving from the pediatric field to the adult field of medicine, um, I think the case for um, moving from the clinical benefits framing to the con informed consent framing uh, grows stronger. In other words, I'm more willing to allow for the informed consent framing in, in the field of adult medicine than I would in the field of, of pediatric medicine for exactly the reasons that you outlined. Right. And the empirical data that I've seen to kind of just underscore your point is that these chemical castrations, mutilations, whatever you want to call them, simply do not redound to the benefit of patients over the long haul. I'm sure that there are some who subjectively feel like they are better short to midterm. Perhaps even there are some who feel better long term. But when it comes to kind of depression and tragically ultimately suicide, the empirical literature that I have seen simply does not support the proposition that this is capital G good, capital M medicine. I mean, this simply does not seem to be the kind of thing that is fundamentally uh, in line with the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm and to simply do good. So, um, Lior, we're running a little short on time, but I want to kind of get you out of here with this question. 
which is really whether you're optimistic or pessimistic with the current lay of the land, with, with the current playing field out there. Obviously, as we mentioned earlier, there are a lot of red leading states in particular, which are passing varying levels of aggressive legislation when it, when it comes to these bans. Again, as the lawyer that I am, I mean, I tend to think that the way this ultimately ends is that there's some probably some massive national class action lawsuit by those who have been wronged by these procedures. I actually saw Senator Josh Hawley in Missouri. I can't remember the exact legislation he filed, but it was something along these lines. It, it, it was kind of getting at the same idea of a massive national class action lawsuit. He had unveiled that bill in the aftermath of the whistleblower that we saw at Barry Weiss's publication from the Washington University in St. Louis Gender Clinic. So talk to me about that. How do you, are you optimistic about what you see out there right now and, and the trend lines? And how do you think this ends if, if it ends? Yeah, great question. Um, I am optimistic. I think we we're starting to turn a corner very slowly, um, but there are a few areas of major concern that are still going to require a lot of work um, because the story of uh, this medical scandal is very much a story of institutional capture. Um, so let me kind of just uh, mention a few of them. One, you mentioned it a little bit, is the courts. Um, I agree that that this medical scandal is very likely to end in um, in, in high stakes uh, litigation, um, a medical malpractice litigation that ends in settlements of millions of dollars. Um, but we're far away from that being a reality. In the in the shorter term, the big question is going to be whether the courts strike down these um, red state bans, and um, and that's that's a complicated question. I'm not going to get into it, but but um, there's I think we're more optimistic this time around than we were, let's say, last year or two years ago. Second would be the medical associations, the professional medical associations, which which in our political system, because it's so decentralized. Um, uh, have a lot more sway over medical policy, over public policy than they would in a place like Sweden or Finland that has a much more centralized uh, uh, healthcare bureaucracy that allows for a lot more top-down control and therefore accountability. The, getting the, the medical organizations are un, undeniably captured on this issue. Um, they, they have been acting uh, very irresponsibly and, and, and they're extremely unaccountable. Um, so getting getting traction there is going to be very important, but that's a very difficult lift. Um, schools, K through 12 schools are another crucial institution here because we know that so much of the uh, of the um, uh, iatrogenic harm, meaning uh, the, the, the uh, medically unnecessary interventions um, happen after these kids learn about gender identity concepts in schools. Often they're secretly socially transitioned um, against their parents' uh, wishes. Um, and so by the time they hit puberty, they're already kind of locked into this trans identity and much more likely to seek medical interventions. And so, uh, you know, getting, uh, frankly, teachers uh, who think that they're doing something kind and compassionate to understand that they're actually performing a psychological intervention for which they have no training or, or no competence is going to be a very difficult lift. The fourth thing I would mention is uh, the area of scientific publication. Um, that's been a real disaster. Uh, the types of, of academic papers that are published nowadays in support of gender-affirming care are, are a joke. At minimum, the problem is that the abstracts of these papers that anybody could read for free do not reflect the actual findings that are reported uh, in the data sections. Um, and, and those findings most people don't look at. Um, so if you're a kind of a journalist not doing your due diligence, you can easily be, be misled by what academic studies have found. And um, and, and that's that's another area that requires urgent reform. And then finally is journalism. 
I think uh, pretty much this entire scandal could have been ended much sooner and and still can be ended uh, relatively quickly if journalists on the left uh, uh, discover their their trade anew. Um, if they show basic curiosity about why it is that uh, European countries have have taken a U-turn on this issue, if they actually read the studies that they cite in support of gender-affirming care, um, if they talk to people on the other side of the spectrum, and if the political uh, spectrum, and if they're willing to stand up to to activists, um, if journalists can actually do their job, um, this thing is going to end much much sooner. But we've seen that that journalism itself is in a state of profound crisis. So um, yes, I'm optimistic, but there still are uh, key areas of institutional capture that we have to work on. Well, there certainly are many key areas that have yet to be properly resolved and still need to be worked on, but we are very grateful for your work in the arena, Lior Sapir. You've really been a pleasure to read over the past couple of years. I hope that you only continue to put out the exceptional content that you are doing right now. And for now, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks, Josh, I appreciate it. Thanks again to Lior Sapir for joining us this week. If you are not following Lior Sapir already, then what the heck are you doing? I mean, he really has become over the past couple of years. I'm not just saying this to toot Lior's horn. He really has become indispensable reading. He is a scholar. He he is a wonderful, crisp writer, and he kind of cuts right to the heart of the issue, as you just heard there in our extended colloquy. So please do go ahead and and follow Lior, and for that matter, actually, really all the excellent work that City Journal and the Manhattan Institute have been doing of late on this particular issue. One thing that I just want to briefly underscore here is this notion that what has been transpiring, the gender hysteria, the transgender surgeries, the, you know, to use the Orwellian language, quote unquote, gender affirming care. We had this infamous whistleblower earlier this year at Barry Weiss's Substack, which is now known as the Free Press of the Gender Clinic at Washington University in St. Louis. All of these horrific uh, Mengele, really, I mean, oftentimes going to Mengele, Dr. Mengele-esque human atrocities happening in the in these clinics that we are only beginning to scratch the surface of because the social stigma is so against whistleblowers like this courageous one that Barry Weiss was able to get in touch with out in St. Louis earlier this year. The social stigma and the social capital is so, so, so against these whistleblowers. So we're only beginning to scratch the surface. But this is, as Lior said, or shows all the signs of being the greatest medical scandal in modern human history. It really is. I mean, I mean, I again, I am not a doctor, but all you have to think about is the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath is very simple. Do no harm. Well, where is the Hippocratic Oath in the transgender surgeries? Again, as Leo and I discussed, I mean, holding aside kind of the anthropology and the conceptions of man, can man play the role of God and choosing, I'll hold all that aside. The raw kind of scientific empirical data when it comes to the efficacy or lack thereof of these so-called surgeries is deeply mixed at best and at worst is affirmatively on the side of profound skepticism. And this is actually one interesting area where the U.S. has been lagging behind Europe. Europe is normally in many areas of life. I guess abortion is another exception, but in most areas of life. Over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years or so, Europe has been to the left of the United States. They have been more progressive. And then the question is, you know, how long will it take for the U.S. to catch up to the Europeans or at least for the Democratic Party here in the U.S. to catch up to the liberal parties of Europe? But this is actually one issue 
where the reverse has been true. In fact, there have been many countries and medical organizations in Europe from Sweden to the UK, Finland, I believe are some of the ones that come immediately to mind that have been blaring a very loud alarm and saying, actually, whoa, we have gone too far on the gender ideology front. Wow, we actually have gone too far, specifically when it comes to transgender surgeries for so-called gender affirming care for minors. We actually have gone quite a bit too far there. It's time to pump the brakes, take a pause, reassess the data, and maybe, maybe, maybe consider the possibility that we as a society, that we as a civilization in general are going way too far, way too quickly, and maybe, just maybe, this is actually not a good idea. So that was really just powerful language from Lior. I wanted to underscore the greatest medical scandal in human history, or at least in modern human history. Those are powerful words, and I do think that the preponderance of the evidence as of now certainly suggests that that is in fact the case. I continue to hold that hope that some sort of massive national class action lawsuit filed by some brave litigants, uh, litigated by some very brave and very courageous attorneys, you know, I can think of some public interest law firms. I hope some of you out there are listening perhaps to this show are starting to maybe try to get your litigants in order. We probably are not there yet, but hopefully we'll be getting there soon because God willing, this whole horrific experiment and this medical scandal will come to an end, God willing, hopefully soon. But for now, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lior Sapir of the Manhattan Student City Journal. Once again, if you are not already subscribing to this program, The Josh Hammer Show, please do go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us that five-star review and write in your comments. We love reading them. We do listen to your feedback. And we will see you next week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lior Sapir. But I am Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. <laughs> It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.